Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Biweekly Geopolitical Report for February 15, 2024. I'm Phil Adler. As the U.S. slowly withdraws from its status as the world's policeman and as countries realign into separate economic and political blocs, both the strategies and the costs of preventing war change. And as the task of preventing war becomes more difficult, the risks change as well. All of this has implications for investors. Patrick Fearon Hernandez and Daniel Ortworth co-authored this week's report, and they both join us today to, to help us focus on some important trends. Patrick, I mentioned the task of preventing war in my introduction, but this overall goal of deterrence includes the challenge of preventing a regional war, which is already underway, from exploding into something much more serious. Aren't we seeing exactly this scenario playing out today in the Middle East? Yes, we are indeed seeing a deterrence game in the Middle East right now. As Iran-backed militants in Yemen, Syria, and Iraq stage strikes against U.S. troops and ships in the region out of sympathy with the Hamas government that Israel's retaliating against, the U.S. is trying to deter those militants with ever more powerful counterattacks. As we mentioned in our article, the goal would be to dissuade the militants from further attacks by credibly threatening and carrying out severe strikes against them. But the administration is also reluctant to hit them so hard that Iran would feel compelled to act. The administration's effort to calibrate the U.S. attacks has invited criticism that the attacks are too little too late and therefore fail the dictate of deterrence theory that the U.S. threat be credible and severe. If the militants keep attacking, then by definition, this is a failure of deterrence, and the administration may need to take a tougher stance. In the old days, military deterrence was accomplished by assembling a large army. What's different now? Well, you're right. Many people today have an old-fashioned, outdated view that we can deter attacks just because, with time, we could mobilize our rich, powerful economy and our large population to have a big, well-equipped army, like we did in World War II. Indeed, many people probably want to think like that because it means that most of the time, the country wouldn't have to bear the cost of a large military. You would only mobilize when you needed it. The problem is that in the nuclear age, the ability to quickly hit an enemy with nuclear weapons means that the advantage has shifted decisively to the offense. A nuclear attack could be so quick and devastating that you'd never have time to mobilize. Therefore, Deterrence theorists believe that now, deterrence must come from a big, strong, permanent arsenal of conventional or nuclear weapons, which the theorists refer to as weapons in being. World War II-style mobilization simply won't cut it today. Does today's strategy of nuclear deterrence create opportunities for countries that couldn't afford the expense of a large, mobilized standing army in the past? 
Yes. Nuclear weapons not only provide the threat of severe punishment to an adversary, but they also provide an enormous bang for the buck. In fact, as important as the U.S. nuclear deterrent is, it only accounts for 5% of the total U.S. defense budget. You can see why countries like Iran and North Korea are trying to get their hands on the bomb. If the U.S. pulls back from its role as global hegemon, and if it creates doubt that it would defend its allies, many more countries will likely try to build a nuclear deterrent force as well. Patrick, it's, it seems to me that everything is faster now. As you already mentioned, a country wouldn't have much time to respond to a nuclear attack. We're talking about minutes, not days or weeks. How does this reality change the costs and the risks of deterrence? Well, the quickness of delivering nuclear warheads, uh, the difficulty in defending against them, and the devastation that they can cause are a big reason why they're the gold standard for military deterrence these days. They threaten to impose an enormous cost on the attacker. Now, the risk, especially when you have two or more adversaries aiming nuclear weapons at each other, is that deterrence might fail, or there might be an accident or miscalculation that unleashes the weapons. Of course, in the Cold War, that never happened, and many theorists believe nuclear deterrence can actually result in more stable international relations. There's just so much more incentive to avoid a big war. Nevertheless, you simply can't totally discount the risks that I just mentioned. Daniel, in this week's report, you write about the structure of the current U.S. nuclear strategy, known as the triad. What are the three components of this strategy? Phil, it's a good thing you asked, because the triad is a time-honored concept that really is the foundation of our entire approach to nuclear deterrence. It consists of land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, sea-based submarine-launched ballistic missiles, or SLBMs, and land-based bomber aircraft. Each leg of the triad provides a distinctive capability. ICBMs are immediately launchable and convey the most destructive power. SLBMs, borne by ultra-quiet submarines with unknown locations and movements throughout the vastness of the oceans, can survive an initial enemy nuclear strike and convey the greatest element of surprise. Bombers can be moved from place to place, including their home bases in the U.S. and forward-deployed locations near a prospective enemy, just to send a political message or to quickly strike, and they can be recalled from strike missions after they're already airborne almost up to the last minute. Taken together, the three legs provide a far greater deterrent capability than any single one could on its own. Following the end of the Cold War, the U.S., seems to have paid less attention to military readiness. Have we, in fact, fallen behind in terms of weaponry and skill? Generally, it's more a case of having lost a lot of our lead rather than having actually fallen behind. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has mostly just maintained the elements of the triad, admittedly world-class elements, that it had 30-plus years ago. Same missiles, same submarines, same bombers, albeit with some meaningful upgrades and life extension improvements. Meanwhile, the Chinese and Russians have been working very hard and heavily investing in their nuclear enterprises. They're 
30 years ago, the Chinese nuclear force was very small and not very capable. Today, they have a real ICBM force, and they have just begun to field nuclear-capable submarines and bombers. While still much smaller than our force, they now have a triad, and at current growth rates, it is expected to surpass ours in size sometime in the 2030s. Now, the Russians never really stopped investing in their nuclear enterprise, even during the time of troubles that they had in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Due to treaty obligations, it remains about the same size as ours, but they have made great strides in technology. The Russians have fielded a new ICBM and a new nuclear-capable submarine, among some other developments. In certain respects, the Russians very well may have passed us by. Daniel, are we making any progress making up ground? Yes, Phil, I am grateful to say that we have. In 2010, now that's 14 years ago, in response to a full-scope review of the status of our forces and the work being done by the Russians and Chinese, President Obama authorized a nuclear modernization program intended to address every part of the nuclear enterprise, not just the three legs of the triad, but the supporting research and development capabilities and command and control systems as well. The program includes work on a new ICBM, a new nuclear submarine, and a new bomber, and each of the new designs constitute very impressive leaps forward in capability. All told, the program was originally slated to cost a trillion dollars and cover 30 years of work, so it is a serious commitment. Unfortunately, the program has been running over budget and behind schedule. However, recent years have seen an increasing level of attention and an increasing sense of urgency regarding our nuclear enterprise. National leadership seems to be waking up to the danger. For example, the latest nuclear posture review conducted by the Department of Defense two years ago makes a very strong case for not only staying fully committed to the modernization program as it stands, but adding additional investments to keep pace with the threats that have emerged since 2010. Patrick, we mentioned earlier that the slow withdrawal of the United States from its post-World War II role as the world's policeman is opening the eyes of other countries, not just China and Russia, to the need to develop their own weaponry. Are there specific instances where this is happening today? Oh, yes, it's clearly happening. In Europe, for example, many countries have become alarmed by Russia's aggression against Ukraine, so they're boosting their overall defense budgets and buying more conventional non-nuclear weapons. On top of that, key European politicians have begun to openly discuss a potential strategy for European nuclear weapons beyond those of the UK and France. In Asia, recent polls show that more than 70% of the population in South Korea think that the country should develop its own nuclear bombs to deter aggression by North Korea or China. The Japanese have also recently adopted a new defense strategy that calls for developing their own conventional missiles to strike targets in China. It's all happening already. I was intrigued by the suggestion in the report that potential nuclear proliferation could be especially risky for the China-Russia geopolitical bloc. Why? 
Yes, that's perhaps the most notable finding in our analysis. It's very clear that Beijing and Moscow think that if they can drive a wedge between the U.S. and its European and Asian allies, those allies will acquiesce and accept Chinese or Russian leadership. But the Chinese and Russian strategy could well backfire on them. If the Europeans and Asians think the U.S. nuclear umbrella will no longer be available to protect them, those countries could go nuclear rather than kowtow to China or Russia. Then, if that happens, Beijing and or Moscow could find that they're surrounded by close-in nuclear states. Now think about that. How do you think Russian President Putin would respond if he wakes up some morning and the Germans have the bomb? Or Poland has the bomb? Or the Baltics have the bomb? Well, you can imagine he wouldn't be very likely to take that well. Well, in this new world, it seems evident that the risk of something going wrong is elevated. How should investors deal with this? Yes, and, and we know this is a scary topic to talk about, but you know we believe it's important for investors to understand the risks involved with today's world, and then just as important, they should look for the opportunities the new world may provide. That's why in our report, we examined both the risks and the opportunities in this new world from an investment perspective. Well, it also seems evident that some of the best opportunities in stocks should be found in defense companies. My question is, should investors perhaps favor defense companies in Japan and in Europe, where defense spending seems to be in the initial phases of gearing up? Yeah, that was actually one of the great stories of 2023. Global defense stocks generally did well last year, but non-U.S. ones did especially well. At least in part, that probably reflects the slower bureaucracy and budget issues here in the U.S. and the fact that European and Asian defense companies are closer to the front lines, so to speak. Nevertheless, we do think the prospects are bright for U.S. defense stocks and the stocks of other U.S companies that do a lot of military business, at least those prospects are, are likely to get better as we go forward in time. Well, more spending on defense can't be good news on the inflation front. Will deepening budget deficits caused by higher government spending be unavoidable? Why? personally don't consider it inevitable or unavoidable, since you could theoretically increase the military budget with funds diverted from civilian programs or with tax increases or some combination of the two. And of course, there's always the hope that we could just find new efficiencies or innovations that would allow us to get more bang for the buck in our defense budget. Nevertheless, in an era of increased geopolitical tension, the state is likely to get bigger and and stronger. And that's a big reason why we think inflation in the future will be higher, on average, than we've seen in recent decades. Thank you, Patrick and Daniel. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. <laughs>